0: Welcome to the podcast of Midtown Church OKC, a church of the Nazarene. We are a spiritual community of hope and transformation that lives the way of Jesus. We want to develop real relationships and have real conversations. So we would love to hear from you. Find information about our worship services, email a pastor, follow our blog, sign up for our newsletter, and find out how to be a part of our community by visiting our website. MidtownChurchOKC.org. Lord Jesus, for this time, many of us have come in heads spinning. We've come from a week that we've watched turmoil in our world, in our nation, and some of us in our own personal lives. Our congregation is full of people who are in the process of discernment, trying to decide what's next, who are in various roles of transition, change, uncertainty, grief and disappointment. It's all there. It's all here. And so tonight we pray with the words, of an old friend, Reinhold Niebuhr, who has given us a great gift called the Serenity Prayer. And we ask that as these words come through our minds and hearts, that you would grant what we ask. And so, God, we ask that you would grant us serenity, peace of mind, to accept the things that we can't change. And We ask that you would give us courage to change the things that we can. And we ask that you would give us the wisdom to know the difference. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to live one day at a time, that you would help us to enjoy one moment at a time. We ask even that you would allow us to accept hardship as a pathway to peace, that you would show us how to take this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. We ask that you would help us to trust in you who will make all things right as we surrender to your will so that we may be reasonably happy in this life, but supremely happy with you forever in the next. And with these words, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would put a rest to the turmoil in our hearts and minds, even if for just this hour. And then we can ask you again for the next one. We ask that as we sit and hear, That we would know your spirit, which is alive and active and moving in our midst. We pray for something as bold and daring as transformation. We pray that you would change us as a result of our time spent together with you, hearing from your word, gathering at your table, and being with one another. And we ask these things in the name and spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 119. Back by popular demand, we have the whiteboard, everyone. Thank you Thomas, I appreciate it. Our intern Thomas, I'm doubling his pay today for that, it's amazing. Psalm 119, and uh, I have some friends who have Bibles. If you uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. They will come and bring you a Bible. If you don't own one, you can have it. I say it every single week. We love giving away Bibles, and we are starting this new sermon series where we're having discussions about the Bible, so if you just need to borrow one for the evening, you can do that, but Psalm 119, it is the longest Psalm, and uh, I would invite you to stand. We're going to start with verse 1, and I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word, this ancient text for us this evening. This is a poem, a song, a hymn, and it comes to us. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have, kept, you have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life to your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please do not give up on me. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. And I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. This is the word of God for the people of God, and let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, about six years ago, I I was in my office when I received a really kind of, I mean, it was a provocative email from a young 15-year-old girl whose name was Sarah. Now, you need to know something. Sarah was Really smart and she was ahead of her peers in terms of life and faith and asking questions in relationship to life and faith and she didn't just believe things because people said that she should. I like Sarah. So she sent me this email. I want to give you this email, but I want to let you know with a little bit of a qualifier that that this thing that I'm doing right now is more of a teaching than it is of a sermon, perhaps. So I want to invite you, if you want to take your worship folder, borrow a pen from the neighbor you just met, or whatever the case may be, you might want to be able, you might want to take some notes as you listen to this email from Sarah. Okay, so this is what she says, and it's on the screen. She says, Chris, I have a weird question. It's about the Bible. Namely, how to actually read it. I don't mean in the sense of like reading the words or getting something out of them, whether it's something I apply to my own life because of devotions or something that God throws at me with flashing lights that say, Sarah, Sarah, you need to read this. It's important. I mean in terms of truth. I mean, I've heard that the Bible is true, and it's the Word of God. However, I don't get some of the stories. We're told from a really young age that every word of the Bible is true, and then uh, later I heard that Esther may not have ever existed, which was a blow for me because she's my absolute favorite. I've been struggling with this issue for a while, and I talked to my parents about it, so I'm just wondering, how much of the Bible is open for interpretation, if any of it is at all? And how are you supposed to know? Things like the story of Esther in the Bible, just sort of parables teaching us truth through fiction, or what? I, I. This is what came to me. How would you go about answering Sarah's question? How would you go about answering Sarah's questions? Because let's let's be honest, there's a lot. Packed in here. You may have even asked some of these questions. Now, growing up, I heard a lot of people say a lot of different things about the Bible. I've heard people say these really wonderful, soft statements. Statements like this the Bible is a map. The Bible is our foundation. The Bible is our guide for faith. The Bible is God's love letter to God's children. The Bible is the guidebook for all good, good living. The Bible is our instructor, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. These were the soft kind of wonderful statements that I've heard, I heard about the Bible, but I heard harder, more dogmatic statements as well, like this, the Bible is absolute and the Bible is true. The Bible is literal, the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is infallible, the Bible is the very inspired Word of God, the Bible is the authority for everything that it touches and everyone in the world. Now the people that have these harder, more dogmatic ideas about the Bible throw around these big, immovable words that have a lot of punch, and it commands that above everything else, the Bible is absolute. The Bible is perfect. I've heard people say this, you should just put your faith in the Bible and leave the issue alone. Now... If we could, let's just be honest, okay? So with this, with a statement like this, comes some distress. Because while some of us have seen and heard people use the Bible for good, there are some of us that have seen and heard people use the Bible as a weapon in a way that has brought tremendous harm, that has increased guilt, that has been very hurtful and even incited violence some people treat the Bible like it's this uh, a Christian magic book that God has tossed from the sky and it landed on someone's desk or others think that it is this immovable list of ancient rules that should be applied for all time some treat it as a, you know, a, a list of historical events and others see it as just a collection of myth mythical stories and still and still others believe that it came t- that it contains everything that in Encompasses all the mysteries of God and all of the answers of science, and everything about the universe is somehow found in it. We just need to look a little bit harder. Others think it's like this crystal ball, and it's got this, it's loaded with answers to predict the future. You watch any television evangelist, and this is what you see. So with all of this stuff, with the question that has been laid out and with the misconceptions about what the Bible is, with these dogmatic statements that are presented to us, with all the stuff that's going on, while we use the Bible in worship even, with all that's taking place, from, uh, uh, when the Bible is written anywhere from 2,000 to 7,500 years old, this is the one thing that we know. And this is the one thing that we've all experienced from time to time, and that is that the Bible can be confusing. So John Wesley is our theological forefather, and he believed that the Bible, or the Holy Scriptures, are a complete rule of practice and faith, and that they, this is a direct quote, are are clear in all necessary points. But he also adds, and yet their clearness does not prove that they need not be explained. So in other words, Wesley is saying that the Bible is the centerpiece that gives direction for our faith. He believes this. And he believes that the Bible is clear on all of the points that are essential for us. But yet, even Wesley affirms that just because the Bible might be quote-unquote clear, there is this weird paradox because it still needs explanation explanation. So it's important for us to ask questions like Sarah asks. It's important for us to come and ask questions like this. What is it that we mean when we say that the Bible is true? What is the Bible even in the first place and where did it come from? What is the function of the Bible and how do we even go about reading it or interpreting the Bible? And then why does reading and interpreting the Bible even matter? This, I think, these five questions are the basis of Sarah's question. So these are the questions that we're going to talk about over the next several, uh, several weeks. And, and in the end, I'm going to give you the answer to, to my answer to Sarah's question. But before we do any of that, could I just say a few pastoral words? Is that okay to you? So let's be honest, okay? Asking questions about God, faith, the Bible, that's a slippery slope. That's a dangerous place for us to go. And when we start down the road of asking questions about the Bible, a whole lot of other questions rise to the top. So we're asking questions, and it might just get a little bit uncomfortable. And it's the same thing that happens when there is a new scientific discovery that we don't understand in light of the scriptures that we've read. Or, or uh, it, it, it happens when there is a faith kind of conflict that we have on the inside. It, it happens when there's something that we read in the text that we don't understand, or as Mark, Mark Twain says, it, there's a little bit of a conflict when we read the Bible and there are things that we do understand. And we ask questions, how do we reconcile this with what we read in the biblical text? How do we reconcile this with something that we feel or something that we have experienced? And so I can make you feel a little bit more comfortable just at the beginning. I want to let you know that Wesley himself dealt with this paradox. Wesley dealt with this conflict. And when this happens, it gets uncomfortable because our world feels rocked and so our faith can feel rocked as well. So when Wesley was confronted with these sorts of questions after a new scientific discovery, or when he had faith conflicts, Wesley would not try to pit one field over the other, making sure that one thing, like Scripture, had supreme authority over another thing, like science. Instead, what he would do is he would seek the understanding that did justice to both and in such, he would honor scripture while at the same time, he would honor the contribution to the, of the field of study to the world. So let me just say, pastorally, about the uncomfortable that you might feel over the next few weeks, it's okay. Stick with it. We want to be a church where people can come and they can ask their questions. And there are three reasons why we want this. The first reason is because if there is anything that we know about Jesus, Jesus rocked people's world. He asked hard questions. And in doing so, he changed their thinking. He upset their faith apple cart. He flipped their expectations. And so he might do that for us as we ask these kinds of questions. And since we want to walk the way of Jesus, when we follow him faithfully, getting our faith apple cart upset is what might happen, and that's okay. So it's okay for us to ask these questions, even if they call us into a journey of struggle. The second reason that it's okay to ask these questions is because of this. The Bible says we should. We ask the questions about the Bible thinking critically about the Bible because even the Bible gives us permission In Proverbs, this is what we hear. My son or my daughter, if you accept my words and you store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth, words come. Words of knowledge and understanding come. And then there's a third reason why we ask questions. And that is because I think that this God might just be big enough to handle our questions. Maybe this God wants to work in this space over the next four or five weeks and stretch us into maturity and wisdom. And if this God is not threatened by our Bible questions, then this God might just be big enough to handle all of our life's difficult questions as well. Are you okay with that? Are we good so far? Are you tracking with what I'm going with, where I'm going? Okay. So here's where we go. Eugene Peterson says this then about reading the scriptures. When we ask our questions, It looks like I'm going to have to let go of what I expected and dive into a mystery. And that is what we do. So over the next few weeks, we're going to try to ask some of these questions and answer some of these questions. But I want you to know that as we ask and answer some of these questions and we search for these answers, we do it within a set of rules or guidelines that we call orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy simply means right belief. And it's important that we, like Sarah, give ourselves the space to be able to answer and ask and answer some of these questions so that right belief can be revealed and we can draw the conclusions that we need. So the first question she essentially asks is this, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is true? And in order to answer this question, we have to take one gigantic step back and recognize there is one thing that is at the heart of the Christian faith, and before that, even the Jewish faith. Now, at the heart of the Jewish and Christian faith is this idea that God uniquely reveals God's self to humanity within the context of historical events. God is the one who reveals God's self to the world. Now, this is a self-disclosure, a self-revelation. God is the one who goes about the business of making sure that God is known. In other words, God is the one that makes the first move. During the three-minute drill, the good neighbor practice, during the good neighbor practice, God is the one who talks first, okay? Okay? He's the one who shares what he is like, what he likes, and what he likes to do. He, he is the one who does it first. God is the one who introduces himself first to humanity. He makes the first introduction. So Christians, and again Jews, do not believe that humans went on a quest to somehow discover God and ended up finding God. Instead, God was the original seeker. God was the one who went after humans first. John Wesley calls this prevenient grace. It's the goodness of God that goes to get us. This is what Christians find at the heart of who they are. And from the beginning, this God, beginning like Genesis beginning, this God is about seeking out humanity and creating and finding ways to create and reorder and restore creation. The first move is God's move. And at the heart of Jewish and Christian faith is the idea that God reveals God's self to the world first. Are you with me so far? Okay. What makes Christianity, though, especially unique? even before the New Testament was even written, was the claim that not God not only revealed God's self in terms of purpose or in terms of ideas or beliefs or nature, like creation or earthquakes or butterflies, or that God revealed God's self in natural events, like an escape from Egypt or something like that. Christians believe all of those things, but what, is what makes Christianity especially unique is that Christians believe that God revealed God's self in a person, This is Orthodox Christianity. God is on full display in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We call this special special revelation. God's revelation to the world is specific. It's not general. It's not just in nature. It's specific. God discloses God to the world via a special revelation. God is revealed to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And we call this the incarnation. God decided to show up. And the whole Christian story is one by which God is attempting to move into the world, to reveal God's self to the world. And God decides to do this in a person. Now John chapter 1 says it this way, in the beginning was the word. And John is not talking about the Bible. John says, in the beginning was the Word. It was a capital W. It's the living Word. It is not the Bible. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was with God in the beginning. And Eugene Peterson says that the Word was God, and God made his dwelling among us, or in other words, God moved into the neighborhood. Paul says it this way in Colossians. He's the image of the invisible God for everything, absolutely everything above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds his purpose in him. He was there right before it, he was there before any of it came into existence, and he holds it all together right up into this moment. God is making God's self known to the world, and he does it in this amazing, incredible act. He decides to show up in person. We call it the incarnation. And so what Christianity is, is this response to God's self-revelation to the world, to God's self-disclosure in history and in person. Time for the whiteboard. Are you ready? There we go. I want you to see the order to this, okay? I'm going to draw a picture of God. You ready? trinity. (laughs) First, there is God, and God reveals God's self to the world, and God decides to do so in person. This is orthodox Christianity, and from that, a group of people see and bear witness to this activity of God. That's a church, in case you didn't know, and then from that, They begin to tell stories about how this God has revealed God's self to the world. And their stories, eventually, were written down. Do you understand this? First, there is God who reveals God's self to the world. And a group of people bear witness to this activity. And they claim that, yes, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God is revealed to the world. And they begin to tell these miraculous stories about this person known as Jesus of Nazareth. And eventually, some of these stories, poems, letters, are collected after they're written down. Now, I, write, I, I show you this because for a long time, I was under the impression that God, the first thing that God did was that God first gave humans the Bible not that God started with the church and then eventually that there was the Bible, but that God started and then there was the Bible. God gave human beings the Bible. Uh, And and, and he did so by having them write it down in almost like a robotic trance-like state. You know, God from heaven tells somebody what to do and then they begin to write it down. This is what I thought made the Bible inspired and authoritative. It's what I thought gave the Bible its beef and made it true. And then once the people wrote it down, then that group of people, then a group of people had to be convinced. And from that, a church came. They had to be convinced that the Bible was the revelation of God to the world. And a church was, uh, a church began to evolve. And a religion began to evolve. And that religion had to make convincing proofs then. It was the task of that religion to go around and make convincing proofs of the authority of God by using this Bible in order to support the idea that this God was the right and true authority in the world. In other words, I thought it was God, the Bible, a group of people. And then evangelism meant that it was important for church people to go around and talk about this God using the authoritative word of God to convince others to believe. And if you did not believe, well, then it was doomsday for you. Now, the implications of of number two are very serious because if this is the case, then this means that the scriptures that were given to us by God would be the revelation of all knowledge. In other words, the Bible is the full and complete uh, series and volume of data and facts and details, and nothing is to be missed. It's full and it's complete, and there is nothing mysterious in it. There's no wonder or admiration or awe or even love if this is the case in this approach. But Christian orthodoxy insists that the Bible, listen to what I'm saying, okay? I want to make sure we're very clear. Christian orthodoxy insists that the Bible is not the revelation of God. Did you hear what I said? The Bible is not the revelation of God, but rather the Bible points to the revelation of God. The Bible is not the revelation of God, but what the Bible is, is it is the story that points to the revelation of God. Who is the person of Jesus? And this is what makes the Bible true. It is because the Bible is composed of a group of people who bear witness to the activity of, of God in the world. The this, this scriptures bear witness to the true word of God, capital W, the living word, capital L, capital W, Jesus Christ. The, the Bible is a proclamation. It's a story. It's a narrative. It tells the story of how God has worked in the world and how people have responded to that work and they have all pointed to the person of Jesus we could say it this way that the Bible is the written word lowercase w written word uh, the written word of God that only has authority because it points to the capital L capital W living word of God who is Jesus and is the authority do you understand what I'm getting at here The statement early on that made the statement early on that implied that the Bible is the absolute truth is only such in that it tells the truth about how God has revealed God's self to the world in the person of Jesus. We have an article of faith about this. I didn't make this up, okay? So our article of faith is number four, and our article of faith talks about the Holy Scriptures, and it is rooted in a historic Orthodox understanding. We say it this way in our manual. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testament given by divine inspiration, inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning all things necessary to our salvation so that what is, whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. Here's how I would sum this up. We believe, and the church agrees, not just our church, the wide church agrees that the Bible, these 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament is a series of ancient documents of various genres and forms that have been written over time, and they are without error in collectively telling us the story about how God has decided to save the world in the person of Jesus Christ. It is without error in telling that story the scriptures are the story is the the scriptures is the story of the activity of a once mysterious god who is now fully revealed who we can see his love and how he works in history and in and among human beings and through events and within cultural within the cultural framework from which they came And God does not just speak words or command words or speak laws from on high, sending the word down um, to us, but instead God comes and the word is among us. And the word is diligently revealing love, true love to the whole world and people, real life, Ordinary people give witness to this self-revealing, this mysterious and loving activity. And this is why so many claim to see it as good news. The Bible was written by criminals and crooks, adulterers, whores, religious and non-religious, prophets and priests, slaves and free, Jews and Greeks. All of them affirm this activity, which makes sense because the bible is also understood by those best by those kinds of people today those who wrote down the bible uh, did so uh, in their own words they told the story from their own vantage point in their own language and through their own interpretive lens and they did so in a variety of ways they wrote letters and they sang songs and they wrote poems and they and they together affirmed what this god was doing together Then they saw and they talked about it and then they wrote it down and then they collectively have affirmed it again. And Christians today still claim that this God is revealing God's self to the world today, even in a person. I love what my friend William Casias, he says, everything in my life where Jesus is, is good. This is what gives the Bible It's beef. This is what gives the Bible its authority, its inspiration. It's not that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. What gives the Bible authority, what makes it true, is the collective affirmation of the people after they have seen God act. After they've seen God show up, it tells us the truth about God. And today people affirm and say, yep, that's exactly how God saved me. That's how exactly how God did it through Jesus in my life. So when Sarah asked me if I believe that the Bible is true, my answer was yeah. I, I'm, I'm with them. I, I affirm along with my tribe and the rest of the, and the rest of Christendom that the Bible is true because it tells us the truth about God and it tells us the truth about humanity as well. But what makes it true, what gives the Bible its authority, is that these 66 books from beginning to end, from prophets to apostles, point to the saving and loving work of God through Jesus on the cross. So I responded to her in this way. This is the beginning of my response to her. Dear Sarah, I think you're trying to stump me. Not this time. Because if you were to ask me if I believe that the Bible is true, I would say, absolutely. It tells us the truth about how God has decided to save the world in Jesus. But it also tells us the truth about human beings. And if you were to ask me if I believe that the Church of the Nazarene's official statement is that the Bible is the Bible, if the Bible is absolute historical fact, I would say, well, we we would say some of it is. Some of it is poetry. And some of it are letters. Some of it are songs and parables. Some of it is an interesting genre called apocalyptic literature. Some of it is wisdom literature, or the, the, like the proverbs. Some of it is even allegorical. But above all, the Bible is a spiritual book, which means it is the testimony of how God has decided to act in history. And yet, it is a human book, in that we don't believe that human beings were set in a trance and then they robotically wrote things down as it was shot to them from heaven. Humans wrote from their hearts. They searched them. They communicated what they saw within their own context in response uh, response and under the guidance of this Holy Spirit. And and, In other words, I say to her, the Bible is the written word, lowercase w, lowercase w, that points to the living word, capital L, capital W. Who is jesus christ this my friends is what the church confesses it is what we bear witness to it is what we have seen and bear witness to as well this activity of god in jesus so there are a lot of details in sarah's question and hopefully we'll get there but this is the starting point for us we read the bible through the lens of the life the ministry the death and the resurrection Of the one who came to save the world, Jesus of Nazareth. And so you know, Jesus only wrote one thing. We only have record of Jesus writing one thing down. It's found in John, the Gospel of John. And he wrote in the dirt when some scriptural experts abused the scriptures in order to justify killing a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And when they posed a scriptural question to him, do you know what he did? He stooped down, and he wrote with his finger in the dirt on the ground. Jesus of Nazareth did not pen any other words that we know of. And we have no idea what he wrote on the ground on that day. But it doesn't even matter. Because his life, his way, his action, his identity was the word. It was the very word of God. It was, even in those moments, the demonstration of God on full display. And every week we are reminded of this truth. That is why we first proclaim this written word, because it points to the living word, who we believe is still at work in the world. That is why we come to this table It is the revelation of God to us. It is the activity of God. God on the cross, God the one who gave his life for us. In bread and in wine, the demonstration of how God is, is on full display. And so whenever you read, I want you to think of this table. Whenever you read the written word, think of what you experience here through the living word. So, at dinner on the night before Jesus, hear this story. Was betrayed by those he came to save. He took the bread and he broke it. And then he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And every time you gather and every time you eat, I want you to do so in remembrance of me. And then after dinner, he came and he held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, God's love on full display. Whenever you drink of it, I want you to do so in remembrance of me. This is the truth. This is the word, lowercase w, pointing to the living word capital L Capital W It is our hope God reveals God's self to the world in a person So every week we come to this table so that we will not forget that God has decided to show up in our lives in person. And everyone who, is a re- who wants to be a recipient and is open to this good work of God in your life, we want you to be able to come and eat full at this table. And we want no barriers, so I want to let you know that our bread is gluten-free and our wine is non-alcoholic. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite you down this aisle and I want you to do so with your hands cupped. God is the one who made the first move. That is the truth. And I want you to receive that which is good and that which only comes from Him. I want you to approach one of these servers and listen to what they have to say. Then dip the bread into the cup and be thankful that the story is being made real in you. And if for any reason you cannot come to this table, we'd like to serve you. So just wave your hand and Andrea will come and find you and serve you. So Lord, we consecrate these elements to you. We believe that we have heard the truth. May it be so in our lives pray these things in the name of the one who revealed God to the world.